There's a lot of talk these days on the importance of being on the right side of history. The importance of being on the right side of history. Whether or not we're talking about issues related to gender, related to sexuality, related to marriage, or race, or abortion, or yes, even climate change. Apparently when it comes to climate change, you can be on the right or wrong side of history. You name it, even the most recent election. So there's a Pulitzer Prize-winning, multiple Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist, Nicholas Kristof for the New York Times, and he wrote in an op-ed piece a number of months back, just before the election, he wrote, and in that op-ed piece, he begged this question. He said, at the polls, which side of history will you stand on? Will you help tug the United States forward? Or will you support the backward thinkers who have been on the side of discrimination and racism and bigotry and voter suppression, and he just went on. And we sometimes wonder why America is so polarized. But my point, just in quoting that and making mention of it, is that there is increasing pressure to adopt the prevailing worldview, to conform to the present cultural orthodoxy, or if you don't conform, be prepared to be canceled though I admit it is a bit of a tired trope, right? The message is clear, right? Be on the right side of history or you'll be history. But friend, how do you actually know if you're on the right side of history? I mean, certainly Jefferson Davis believed that he was on the right side of history as he sought to expand slavery into the Western territories. Certainly, Martina Navratilova thought she was on the right side of history. If you know her, nine times Wimbledon winner. She's an outspoken feminist. Uh, she is a gay athlete, one who championed gay rights, only to find that her recent objections to transgender women, that is biological men, competing against biological women, those objections had drawn the great ire of the transgender community. And now she is being told that she is now on the wrong side of history. Now, my intention in all this is not to get us bogged down this morning in the culture wars. I'm sure many of us can have spirited conversations about those over lunch or maybe at another time. Rather, as we think about that expression, the right side of history... It is worth noting that history is really only divided into two eras. There is, as we traditionally think, there is B.C. and there is A.D. Or, if you're more in the academy, there is B.C.C. and C.E. But whatever way you want to classify it, history itself actually hinges on one man. History hinges on Jesus Christ. So the question that I want us to be thinking about this morning is even more fundamental. It's even more basic. When it comes to Jesus, what side of history are you on? When it comes to Jesus, what side of history are you on? Friend, it's that question that I want us to have in our minds as we come to the Gospel of Mark this morning. So I'm going to invite you there to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be verses 1 to 20. Did I forget to do that? Well, that would have been really helpful. 
Apparently, I'd forgotten that mic. Did you all hear? Well, it was just the intro. I, hadn't re- I haven't really read the Bible yet, so if you didn't hear it, it's okay. All right. Well, if you heard it, great. If not, it really doesn't matter. None of it was inspired. Thank you, Guy. What a way to start. All right. Well, we are in Mark 15, 1 to 20. Fitting that that's when the mic comes on. Uh, And if you are just joining us uh, this morning, we are in the final hours of Jesus' own life. He has entered Jerusalem uh, in the previous Sunday, and he's entered really to fawning fans. He's entered to adoring crowds. And yet, how quickly public opinion changes. So Judas, as we've seen, betrays Jesus. The religious leadership, they arrest and convict him. The disciples flee from him. Peter denies him as we closed last week. Now it's Friday morning. Jesus has been interrogated by the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin. He's been interrogated throughout the night. They have condemned him. They have spit on him. They have struck him. But they can't execute him. Israel is occupied by Rome, and only Rome can try capital cases. And so this morning, we're going to see Jesus is headed for a second trial. And we're going to pick up that story, Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Mark 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, or you could read that, they cried back, they cried out back, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. 
and they led him out to crucify him. Friends, and with that, Jesus is condemned to die. It's tough to read the injustice, the brutality. Mark actually gives it to us in economy of words. It's, it's very telescoped. And perhaps like in the Garden of Gethsemane, the focus is not so much on the physical pain. We see even here the focus is on the emotional toil that it takes upon him. And it's hard to understand what is happening, let alone in a passage like this, what there is to learn from it. But as we consider these verses, I want us to have in mind three questions, three questions. And these questions are going to serve as our outline. And the questions are simply this. First, who is Jesus? Second, who killed Jesus? And third, why did Jesus die? I think if we can get to an answer to those questions, we're actually getting to the heart of understanding our passage. Again, who is Jesus? Who killed Jesus? And why did Jesus die? First, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That has been, if you have been along in the study, really the central question of Mark. This is the question that has been on everybody's lips, right? The way he teaches, the way he heals, the way he rebukes the religious authorities, the way he even calms the raging seas, right? The question is, who is this Jesus? And yet throughout Mark, we've seen he's reluctant to actually reveal himself fully, to expose his true identity. He's regularly encouraging those he's healed to, to remain quiet, he says, like, don't go out, don't share with everyone, don't go post it all on social media. As he goes from town to town, when the paparazzi hear of him and they find him in the news, right, the news crews come, he escapes. He leaves often under dark and cover of night. He doesn't want all the limelight. He's off to the next place where he's going to minister. Now, there's no doubt he's a miracle worker. But we get the impression that Jesus is actually something more. And as the chapters pass, slowly throughout the book of Mark, a picture has been forming. Kind of like, you know, a Polaroid. You take one of those Polaroid pictures, and at first it's just blank. It's white. But then you give it a little bit of time, you know, maybe flip it a little bit, give it some air, give it a few minutes, and slowly that picture begins to take shape. Lines form. Colors begin to pop. You get depth and contrast as that picture comes into full clarity. Well, that's what we've had throughout this gospel, and that's where we are in these final hours. And in these final hours, that last ink is drawing on that Polaroid picture. And we see Jesus for who he really is. And what's remarkable is that Jesus, in fact, in this scene, says so very little. So the only time Jesus speaks in our passage is there at the end of verse 2. You have said so. In the Greek, it's all of two words. That's it. That is all that Jesus says. And yet, though Jesus says so little, we still learn so much about him. By the way, the different groups and peoples interact with him. So who is Jesus? Well, it looks at first like he's He's a criminal. He's certainly treated here like a criminal. But what Mark is helping us see is, yeah, he is a king. He is a king, 
Four times, if you picked up on it, four times he is referred to as king. That is a title we have not had clearly ascribed to Jesus yet throughout the book of Mark. And yet right here, four times, it comes right before our eyes. Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews? Then in verse 9, what does he say? Do you want me to release to you king of the Jews? Then in verse 12, what shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? And then the, the soldiers, albeit mockingly, hail him as king of the Jews. Jesus is royalty. And when it comes to royalty, there's a certain way we expect royalty to behave. So many of you will know this past week, right, Meghan and Harry, right, the Duke and the Duchess of Sussex, they gave that tell-all interview to Oprah, a kind of expose on the royal family. And as Americans, some of us were bemused by that. Some of us were maybe even a bit cynical to see sort of Meghan playing the part of victim there. But, you know, much more of Britain has actually been outraged at this full-bore assault on such a sacred institution, on the monarchy. This is just something royals do not do. They don't throw shade on their own, especially in an interview with Oprah. It's simply not how a prince, it's not how an heir to the throne is to behave. We have our expectations of royalty. So, with Jesus, the people have their own expectations of royalty. And yet, it was not a royalty, Jesus' royalty, his was not a royalty that met those expectations. It didn't fit their mold. They weren't, therefore, prepared to accept it because Jesus wasn't playing by their same rules. Because what we're seeing is this king would suffer. He would clearly suffer. Now, we saw that last week with the Jewish authorities, right, as they struck him one bloodied blow after another. And here, too, we read, what, in verse 15, that Jesus is scourged. This was a, just a brutal form of torture where, where whips, sort of these leather thongs, had at the end embedded in them stone and lead and glass. And so with each crack of the whip, the body would be stripped of flesh, often exposing cartilage and bone and even more. And to be clear, in the ancient Near East, kings did not suffer like this. Not any true king. Not any worthy king. They, kings, may administer such suffering, but they never receive. They're not the receiving end of this kind of suffering. But friend, not only would this king suffer this king would be shamed. He would be shamed. That's what's being pictured in verses 16 to 20. Right? The, the Roman soldiers who scourged him, they go on to ape and to abuse him. They turn it all into some kind of sport. Right? They're trying to humiliate Jesus. So his brow bears that mocking crown of thorns. His eyes swollen from beating and stinging from sweat. He's now wearing a faded purple robe, purple robe, right, crimson with blood that is dripping from his shoulders. This is the picture. And there the soldiers are before this Jesus, staggering to remain standing. 
And they're saluting him and sneering at him and spitting at him as they cry out laughingly, mockingly, deriding him, Hail, King of the Jews! One would scornfully, scornfully kneel before him. Right At the same time, another would strike him with that makeshift scepter. The whole scene was one macabre parody of royalty. And it was meant to humiliate and meant to shame. And Jesus endured it. Again, this is not how kings are treated. At least not any kings of this world. You see, we all have an idea of what we expect God's king to be like. We have an understanding, at least in our own minds, of what God's savior ought to be. Right? The Jews had their own ideas. The disciples had their ideas. The Romans would have their ideas. And this is part of what Jesus is teasing out in that response he gives to Pilate. So when asked if he's king of the Jews, Jesus responds, verse 2, you have said so? Jesus is basically saying with that, you know, Pilate, you would do well to consider that question. Jesus knows that when Pilate speaks of a king, and what Jesus means when he talks of a king and of a kingdom, well, those are two drastically different understandings because Jesus knows his kingdom is not finally of this world. But we too, as we think of God's king, as we think of a savior he would send to his people, we too have our own ideas for what that figure ought to be like. Right? We want someone, of course, to solve our problems so long as they don't create along the way too many problems for us. Someone who affirms us, all of us, but doesn't make things too awkward for us. We want someone who delights in us and yet doesn't demand too much from us. We make all these assumptions of what God's king and savior must be like, which is to say, we, in those assumptions, make a God of our own image. We make such a God after our own likeness. And when Jesus doesn't fit into that image, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, even the disciples at this point, notice they don't adjust their image of Jesus. They abandoned this Jesus. They even killed this Jesus in favor of the Jesus they would have, the kind of Savior they would want, the kind of Savior they demanded. And friends, that's what we do all the time. One of the things that happens to us in this life is when we encounter Jesus as he truly is in the Gospels, he exposes us. He reveals us. You know, a missionary in Africa tells a story of when he's one day visited by a chief of a tribe. And outside his hut, this missionary's hut, there's a tree and on that tree is a mirror. And the chief comes and happens to look in that mirror, never having seen one, face with war paint, threatening, frightening figure. The chief sees it and is horrified and asks the missionary, who is that man in the tree? And the missionary says, oh, no, 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 that's, there's no man in that tree. That's actually you. That's your reflection in the mirror. And the chief doesn't believe him until he gives the chief the mirror and the chief 
pulls it aside, pulls it away from the tree and looks at it and realizes it's the same wherever he puts it. He looks into it, he sees the same thing. And the chief demands to buy the mirror from the missionary. Missionary doesn't really want to get rid of the mirror, but at the same time doesn't want to anger the chief. And so they agree and he gives the mirror to the chief and immediately the chief throws it on the ground and smashes it to pieces and says, I never want to see that man again. You see, when we're confronted with Jesus, he functions like a mirror. And we see ourselves for who we truly are. And we hate it. We are repulsed by it. We turn from it. We don't embrace the Savior God gives to us. But friends, we must. That's what we're called to do. Friend, will you receive the Savior that God gives to you? Will you allow God to define what you need? Will you receive the Savior that he sends to you? Or will you reject that Savior for a Savior of your own making? A Savior who in the end can't save you, won't even tell you that you need to be saved because that Savior is finally no different from you. You see, Jesus is, he's truly king. And one day, all will confess him as king. And in fact, we're already beginning to see pictures of that right here in Mark 15. So Pilate's question in verse 2 is actually the form of a statement. It's best translated, you are the king of the Jews. But of course, he means that as a statement. I mean, it's a question, but it comes off more as a statement. And by his own words, recognize Pilate, even if unwittingly here, Pilate is already beginning to confess Jesus is king. Even that mock coronation in verses 16 to 20 that was intended as humiliation already is beginning to picture the kind of homage that Jesus will receive from Jew and Gentile alike. To quote an old Baptist, J.L. Reynolds, a higher power presided over that derisive ceremony and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power. And that cross would be the throne of dominion which shall never end. One day all nations will come and bow to this Jesus as king. They will bow to him. They will kneel before him. Right? We read in Philippians 2.8 that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is king. And he will be worshipped as king. One way or another, again, we are seeing every one of us will bow the knee. You can do it in this life. And you can embrace this Jesus as your savior. 
You can recognize your need for him. You can see the grace he holds out to you. You can see the sweetness of the Savior who would endure such shame and suffering for you. And you can let go of your sin. You can run from it and flee to this Jesus. And he will embrace you as you repent of your sins and place your faith in him. You can bow the knee in that way to Jesus in this life or you can bow it in the next life and you can experience this Jesus as your judge. Friend, which will it be for you? Decide now. Know this Jesus as your savior because when he returns, he will return as a terrifying judge. Who is Jesus? He's the king. He's the king to whom one day all will bow and worship. But that begs the question, the second question I want us to consider, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? You know, there's a show that my wife and I would occasionally watch. Uh, back when we used to watch TV sometimes, like when we had like a normal TV with cable and there were shows in the evening and it wasn't all streaming services. But there was a show on ABC called Castle. It had about eight seasons or so on ABC. And Castle's about a group of homicide investigators who team up with a mystery novelist, and together they, well, they solve homicides. So imagine this morning you're a homicide investigator and seek to answer the question from this text who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? Friend, who would you charge in here with murder? Well, at one level, you would likely say the Jewish leadership killed Jesus. For as you investigate more fully, as you look back through the book of Mark, you'll see all the way back in Mark 3, right at the beginning, we read that the Jewish leadership, when Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath, they took counsel, kind of like they did right here in 15 verse 1, and they took counsel on how to destroy him, right? They wanted Jesus dead all the way back then. And then, of course, it was the Jewish leadership that bribed Judas, that arrested Jesus, that then called this kangaroo court in chapter 14 and gathered all of these false witnesses and then condemned him in 1464 as one as deserving death. And of course, it's these same Jewish leaders at the start of chapter 15 who hold counsel. And because they can't execute Jesus, they've got to go and they've got to go to Rome and they've got to get Rome to do it for them. And they know Rome doesn't care about blasphemy laws. They don't care about the intricacies of Judaism. So instead, they got to, they got to get this charge of sedition. They got to get Jesus for treason. They got to get him claiming to be a king. And so they seek to do that. And they can claim that they can take that claim of Messiah and twist that and implicate him so that they can bind him and deliver him now over to Pilate. And in verse 4, we read they, they make many other charges against Jesus as well. And when it looks like Pilate might actually release Jesus in verse 11, instead it is the chief priests who, what, they stir up the crowd Right, to manipulate that crowd in order to murder Jesus. The Jewish leadership is clearly guilty. But is the investigation over? You know, case closed, give it to the DA, is, is that it? Well, the Bible seems to go further, the story seems to go further. 
Right? We want to be careful there because some who see and lay the blame exclusively and solely at the foot of at the feet of the Jews are some of the same ones who historically have been most prone to anti-Semitism. It's a good thing to be sensitive to. The Bible, in fact, here goes further than that. It's not just the Jewish leadership. We see it's Pilate and by extension Rome that also kills Jesus. Now, Pilate was the governor of the area from AD 26 to AD 36. Uh, Pilate was known as one who is a, a pragmatist. He was an opportunist. He was a man driven by self-interest and by self-preservation, which is to say, sadly, he was just a politician. All right, not all politicians are like that. Sadly, many are. And he was a shrewd one at that. Because we get the sense pretty early on that Pilate can see right through the charade. He knows Jesus isn't some political insurrectionist that he must fear. He doesn't pose any real threat to Rome. Notice Pilate has no interest in trying to round up Jesus' associates. Now, Barabbas and his crew, they're in prison. He's not worried about Jesus' associates. And when it comes time to release a prisoner, it's, notice it's Pilate who first suggests in verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? But yet when the crowd insists, what happens? Pilate relents. Verse 15, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, will have Jesus scourged and then delivered over to be crucified. Pilate, at the end of the day, finally, sort of the true north of his moral compass, just his own desire, just his own preservation. Friends, if you are young in the room this morning, I want Pilate to be a warning to you. Let Pilate be a warning to you. Because you can say in so many words, Pilate here just gives in to what we sometimes call peer pressure. He just gives in to peer pressure. It appeared, at least at the start, that Pilate wanted to do the right thing. That he wanted to release this innocent man. But when the crowds persisted, when they kept making their demands, when they shouted all the louder and leaned in all the more, Pilate was only willing to hold out for so long. And he gave in to that pressure. Because fighting against that pressure, well, it finally wasn't worth it. He needed the affirmation more of those crowds. Friend, when you fear man more than you fear God, this is exactly what happens. And yet it's not just a warning to the youth, right? This is a warning to all of us. Pilate is a tragic reminder of the extent to which we will go to protect our own position, to preserve our own reputation, to gain promotion, We've seen this in the history of the church. Some of you will know the story of, of Henry IV. He was a Protestant French king at the end of the 16th century. And yet many Catholics in those times, there were wars between Catholics and Protestants. Many Catholics refused to recognize his claim to the throne. This created a crisis for Henry IV. And so he had a decision to make. Henry IV could either stick with his gospel beliefs or... He could give in. 
And if you know the story, tragically, Henry IV converted to Catholicism with the famous quote, Paris is worth a mass. It's what's happened to Fuller Seminary, if you know the story of Fuller Seminary in the 60s and 70s. That seminary that was founded with such wonderful individuals on such wonderful principles, and yet within but a decade had walked away from biblical inerrancy in order to earn the acclaim and the respect of the academy. We've even seen it this month. If you've been watching, uh, listening to some of the news, reading the stories of, of Bethany Christian Services, right, one of this nation's largest evangelical adoption and foster care agencies, and yet just this month, that agency forfeited its Christian convictions on marriage and on the family before the onslaught of the sexual revolution. Just gave them away. It decided it was more important to shift and to move with the prevailing cultural winds rather than stand upon the rock. My Christian friend, what about you? The examples, sadly, are all about us. The temptations and the pressures are great. Will you stand firm or, like Pilate, as the crowds yell and raise their voices, will you bend and will you give in? It's the decision every Christian and every generation of Christians, to whatever degree, wherever they live, it's the decision we all must make. It's the question we're faced with every day. Now, we're initially tempted to be very sympathetic, I think, with Pilate. And yet, at the end of the day, we must recognize Pilate was willing to sacrifice Jesus on the altar of political expediency. And so what began as a trial before Pilate, the more you read over the story, what began as a trial before Pilate begins to look a lot more like the trial of Pilate. For he stands condemned at the end of the story. And if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, he stands condemned in history. Because what do we confess in the Apostles' Creed? But Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. So when the Jewish leadership turned Jesus over, crucifixion was a Roman punishment ordered by a Roman governor and carried out by Roman soldiers. So Pilate and Rome also are clearly guilty of killing Jesus. But friend, is our investigation over? Are we done now? Have we closed the case? I don't think so, because if you keep looking, there's another party involved Which party most clearly called for Jesus' crucifixion? Well, it's the crowd. It's the crowd right there in verse 13. The crowd is the one who cries out, crucify him. Crucify him. Twice they cry. Now, in Mark, the crowd functions as its own kind of character. The crowd represents the Jewish people that marveled at Jesus. They marveled at his authority and at his teaching. And yet, in the end, that same crowd that marveled will turn against him. They're fickle. And we see this. The crowds that are with one. The crowds that are with you. Whether, just think of, in politics we see it. Governor Cuomo, whatever it might be. The crowds that are with you. Well, the next second, they can turn viciously against you. And in Mark's gospel, the crowd, one thing we notice about them is the crowd never seems to stop 
The crowd never seems to stop and make an informed, careful assessment of Jesus. The crowd is amazed by him. The crowd often wants things from him, but they're not stopping to really ask, who is this guy? What are we to make of him? What do the scriptures have to say about him? No, the crowd is easily see stirred up, verse 11. They're not exactly thoughtful. They're not prayerful, which makes them far more gullible, easily manipulated, easily swayed by public opinion. Friends, I think the crowd is a great warning for us just as an evangelical church, even just broadly as an evangelical church today. Because sadly, many evangelicals don't know their Bibles, which makes them easy prey for others who would use them with vague references to scriptures, draw them to them in order to, well, to promote their own agendas. And the reality is evangelicals love to be courted. And politicians know this. And they take advantage of this. All right, we love the places of honor at the National Prayer Breakfast. We love to be consulted. We love to feel important. We love to feel special. We love to be invited to the table. Who doesn't like that? No, of course, we all love that. Maybe even be invited to pray at an inauguration. Evangelicals love that, which is why politicians often at election time, like birds anxious to mate, often preen themselves. They preen themselves before evangelical organizations and constituencies. And in the end, we becoming nothing more than pawns that get played, just like the crowds are played here. Because that's exactly what happens. The crowd, they're nothing but a pawn. They're being co-opted and played by others who have their own agendas and who are pursuing their own ends, namely here and obviously the chief priests. Oh, friends, may that not be true of us. And yet even here, our investigation, yeah, it's still not over. The chief priests, they instigated it? Yes. Did the crowds demand it? Yes. Did Pilate execute it? Yes. Did the soldiers then enforce it? Yes. But friend, we too are complicit in it. You and me, you and I, we are complicit in it. If we step back, theologically speaking, we all are responsible here for Jesus' own death. Now, we don't like to think we're complicit in the death of an innocent man. We like to think in this story we would be some other character, some character that's not listed in the story, some character that Mark forgot about. He forgot to write into the story. Peter had certainly told him about this character, and that would be us. That's what we like to think. We wouldn't be like the disciples who deserted him. We wouldn't be like Judas who betrays him. We wouldn't be like the Jewish leaders who condemn him or Pilate who sacrifices him in order to save his own hide or the crowds who are manipulated against him. No, in our self-righteousness, we would think if we were there, we wouldn't be like any of those folks. We'd be better than that because, of course, that's always how we live, isn't it? Better than that. Now, Sadly, if we know our hearts, that's not true at all. We read in Scripture that Christ died as a sacrifice for sins. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Which is why Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's what we sing in that hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Do you know that line? It was your sin that held him there. No, that's not what we sing. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Oh, my friend, you will never understand the cross. You will never truly love Christ, never truly cherish Christ, never truly glory in Christ until ashamed you hear your mocking voice call out among the scoffers. But the case, friend, the case is not closed. The case is still not closed. If we step back even further, there is yet another actor clearly at work in this story. Behind the Jewish leadership and Pilate, beyond the crowds, beyond you and me, there is God himself. For it's not hard to miss, if we've been paying close attention, that everything here is happening exactly according to plan. You know, back in Mark 10, verses 33 to 34, Jesus prophesied that he would be delivered over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And the disciples laughed, like, what is he talking about? And yet, within but a few short days, it is coming to pass. Every one of those promises tragically being fulfilled. Jesus would be delivered over by men to be delivered up by God. It's what we read in Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, see in there Rome, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, behind it all is the guiding hand of God himself. So who killed Jesus? Well, yes, the Jewish leadership did. Yes, Pilate and Rome did. Yes, the crowd did. Yes, we did. But most fundamentally, God did. The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Look back at that hymn that we sang earlier. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That is what we read in Romans 8.32. God did not spare his own son because it was the only way that he could spare us. That brings us to the final question. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? Now, some of you may have seen the movie Bridge of Spies. It was a 2015 film. It was directed by Steven Spielberg. And it really recounts one of the most 
dramatic moments in the history of the Cold War, moments that no one really knew about until after it had transpired, when on a a cold, dark night in February of 1962, on the bridge connecting East and West Germany, two very high-profile prisoners, the U-2 pilot, right, Francis Gary Powers, who had been shot down, that American U-2 pilot, and a convicted Soviet spy named Rudolf Abel, those two prisoners were exchanged. It was a swap, prisoner for prisoner. In order to be freed, another had to be exchanged. Friends, it's what we see in our passage. It's a kind of prisoner exchange. For it seems that Pilate had this practice every Passover It was a practice really to placate the Jewish crowds where he would, Pilate, release a political prisoner back to the people. It was a kind of Passover amnesty. That was the kind of program Pilate had. Only this prisoner exchange on this day was different. Pilate, as we've already seen, he knows Jesus is innocent. He offers Jesus up to them But the crowds, as we have seen, won't have it stirred up by the chief priests. They demand Barabbas. And we're told Barabbas, in verse 7, is a guy who incited an insurrection and murdered people. He was what we would call a terrorist. That's who Barabbas was. So don't miss what's happening in this prisoner swap. Jesus is turned over so that Barabbas could be turned loose. But even more to the point, an innocent man is flogged and flayed so that a guilty man could go free. What do we have, friend? It is a glorious picture of substitution. It's a glorious picture here of what God does to save sinners. Why did Jesus die? God, in this story, is helping us see. Jesus said in Romans 10, 45, that he would give his life as a ransom for sinners. Right here, he is doing it already, giving his life, and a guilty man goes free. He died as a substitute for sinners. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Why did Jesus die? He died as a substitute for sinners. Though he was not guilty of sin, he took our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be reconciled to God. That is why Jesus died. And that is already being pictured beautifully here, right for us in what happens with Barabbas. Friends, Pilate, the Jewish leaders, the crowds, the soldiers, you've got to know all of them that day, they were convinced that they were on the right side of history. They thought they were doing the world a favor, or at least doing themselves a favor by doing away with this Jesus. But friend, they lacked God's perspective of history. They didn't understand that history was his story. 
bringing it to a certain and definitive end. They didn't see God was actually about something much bigger that day, something much more glorious. Because Jesus, the true king, to whom all will one day bow, is yet a suffering servant king. This king who would be willingly delivered up according to, as we've seen, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God to be a sacrifice and substitute for sinners. Friend, when you come to understand this Jesus and when you come to embrace this Jesus, you'll not only be on the right side of history, you're gonna find yourself on the right side of eternity. Let's pray. God, we give you praise that you have accomplished what we could not. That you have done in Christ what we could never do for ourselves. And then you don't call us to earn it. You don't call us to beg for it. You don't call us to pay for it or any other things that we so often would like to do and somehow make you a debtor to us. No, you freely offer that grace to us in the person of Christ. And you call us to him, this lovely Savior who did not open up his mouth but like a lamb to be slain and slaughtered. We give you praise that this Jesus can be our lamb slain for us. That's in Christ's name we pray, amen.